Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's podcast, we're joined by Fred Burton. Fred was the Deputy Chief of the Counterterrorism Division of the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. He is currently the Vice President of Stratfor, a strategic intelligence and analysis firm tracking global security and international affairs. Fred is also the author of a number of fantastic books about his life in the DSS and beyond. We will be discussing Fred's career in the DSS, the terrorist scene pre-9-11, and a cold case that Fred investigated after retiring from the DSS. Just a quick service announcement. I just want to say a huge thank you to our two Patreon subscribers, Thomas Lumo and Shane Whaley, who you may know from the podcast Spybury. Thank you to both of you for supporting the Dry Cleaner cast. For those who enjoy the work that we do, please go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast and become a Patreon subscriber today. Any contributions you make will be going towards the hosting of this podcast and when necessary, upgrading equipment. On that note, during the production of this episode, we had a few technical difficulties. We had a bit of fun with Skype and the internet connection, which unfortunately is sometimes a frequent occurrence when doing long distance interviews. And unfortunately, my laptop decided to die just as the interview began. So we had to re-record the start. So we've had a few challenges in this episode, and when listening back, I have noticed that my primary microphone failed and my backup one seemed to carry the burden. And so my voice is a little bit echoey than normal. Despite that, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I think it's a really interesting episode, and Fred is a fantastic guest. Thanks for listening. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Fred, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh my. Well, uh, I'm the uh, son of a uh, West Virginia coal miner who uh, went off to the war, World War II, uh, and... um, Ended up settling in the Washington, D.C. area uh, where I grew up. And uh, I, as a young man, I became uh, uh, enamored with public safety and, and joined our local rescue squad as a emergency medical technician when I was 17. Uh, and then I became a police officer uh, in pretty much my, my hometown, our, our local county. Uh, and then I became uh, a special agent with the State Department. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, um, 
in the US, there are multiple agencies that gather intelligence for different reasons. And you, as you were just saying, you work for the State Department in the Diplomatic Security Service. There may be some members of the audience who are not very familiar with the DSS. Can you just tell us a bit about them and what their primary responsibility are? Be happy to. Uh, it, it's amazing how little people know of uh, the Diplomatic Security Service. Uh, uh, of course, uh, this is the service that w- that was in Benghazi uh, protecting uh, Ambassador Chris Stevens, just for a frame of reference for your listeners. But uh, the organization actually was created in 1916, and uh, it predates the FBI, the CIA, uh, and it was an organization uh, of one in 1916 with a chief special agent, and they did everything from espionage to um, investigations of of all kinds of activity around the globe and uh, and I joined in a very interesting time uh, in the 1980s uh, after the horrific uh, embassy bombings in Beirut uh, in 1983 and 1984 and uh, at that time uh, there were several studies which indicated there was not enough State Department agents uh, in existence to protect uh, foreign service officers around the globe. So they did a huge hiring push, and, and I was one of those first classes in the 1980s. And uh, a little-known fact uh, uh, as well with um, the DSS is uh, the organization does a tremendous amount of protection. They protect the Secretary of State. Uh, and uh, in in my days uh, uh, in the past, uh, I was actually on several protective details with uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles uh, and and the children at the time, uh, Harry and William, and and so um, the Secret Service have heads of state, uh, and then the Diplomatic Security Service has uh, the the princes and the queens and uh, the foreign ministers and. Uh, and the likes uh, at the time of, of folks uh, like uh, Yasser Arafat. Yeah, and I, I remember actually in your book, it was very interesting listening about the kind of um, the kind of counterintelligence work that had to go on in protecting um, a head of state who was coming to visit. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes on behind the scenes. Uh, for example, uh, before a British royal visit to the United States, uh, we would liaise with. Um, uh, our, our British uh, law enforcement and security service counterparts uh, to learn the latest threats that may be uh, directed towards them in uh, the United Kingdom uh, and then try to look at that in nexus to how we're going to protect uh, the British royals on U.S. soil. Uh, and at, at one point in time, Chris, uh, the British royal visits to the United States were uh, some of the most high-profile and uh, most threatened visits because of uh, the mentally disturbed threat, uh, the paparazzi, which was never ending, uh, especially when it surrounded uh, Princess Diana. But uh, uh, we had a tremendous amount of stalkers and, and what you would call nutters uh, that uh, would never go away. And uh, so – uh, those are the kinds of challenges in in working uh, any of these high profile kind of protective details. No, I bet, I bet. And um, one question, I suppose, I have about the DSS just to help the audience understand things. Um, what was their relationship like with other agencies like the FBI and CIA during your time when you were there? Well, when I first started as an agent, uh, of course, we had CIA everywhere uh, around the globe, um, like. Uh, 
most folks would expect. Uh, but the FBI w- was at one point in time very few and far between. Uh, and in the 1980s, um, it was not unusual for uh, the diplomatic security service to be uh, kind of a jack of all trades or a sheriff uh, at an embassy where they get involved with everything from espionage investigations to drug cases to uh, employee malfeasance to to crime that takes place in and around an embassy property. So uh, the job is extraordinarily varied from uh, a range of different issues from physical security to countering, uh, you know, uh, the the Russian or Chinese uh, never-ending cyber threats directed towards you, um, hostile surveillance in, in locations, and then you go to places like Afghanistan or Iraq uh, or Benghazi where you're also saddled to provide uh, close body cover uh, for the ambassador or foreign service officers that move off compound. Yeah, yeah. And so I suppose in a, in a sense, um, because of your uh, multi-skilled approach, you sometimes maybe encroach on different territories that other law enforcement organizations might sort of um, have a dominance over. Would that be right? That's a fair assessment. Uh, I can, you know, everybody would like to think that everybody plays well in the sandbox, so to speak, uh, uh, when it comes to cases. But uh, there's a tremendous amount of turf battles uh that always lurk in the shadows uh, in in uh, terrorism and espionage cases and uh, even uh, internal affairs kinds of cases, you know, battles that loom uh, in the hallways between uh, the diplomatic security service and the inspector general from time to time. So uh, uh, occasionally uh, not everybody's on the same sheet of music as uh, one would expect and uh, uh, those kinds of issues do surface. And do you, and in um, the presence of in the post nine eleven era, is that still as big an issue as it was back in the time that you were at the DSF? I think things have gotten better. Uh, meaning, uh, organizations like the FBI, um, you know, have understand that that they can't tackle uh, a topic as complex as terrorism without uh, including uh, multiple agencies. So it's not unusual to have. Um, a, you know your joint terrorism task forces here in the United States, where you have everything from local police officers to even university police officers assigned to the task force to investigate suspects, and and each one of them bring different strengths uh, to the table. So you can leverage, you know, across the the entire transom, uh, you know, a range of different law enforcement kind of uh, responsibilities and and access to different records. Yeah, yeah, no, but so Fred, you were you were posted to the counterterrorism division of the DSS. Can you just tell us a bit about your career and uh, your sort of your journey through the DSS? Uh, be happy to. I, I talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, uh, probably a great deal uh, in my first book, uh, my memoir, Ghost: uh, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent, which uh, Random House printed, but um, in two thousand and eight. But when I started, uh, Chris. Uh, we had – I was one of three agents that we had uh, in our counterterrorism branch at the time, and literally the three of us had the world. And uh, because I was uh, the, the low man on the – you know, uh, in, in, in the pecking order, so to speak, uh, my old boss assigned me the, the Middle East 
Uh, and then uh, it later um, mission creeped into uh, any terrorist organization from the Middle East that was operating uh, around the world. So um, it was really very difficult pushing a boulder up a hill uh, early on with with only three of us that were were saddled with doing everything from investigating terrorist attacks, uh, but also doing hostage debriefings of all the hostages held in Lebanon uh, at the time. To um, the the other uh, variable, which uh, I think it's critical for your your listeners to understand, is that you know for every terrorist attack you see. Uh, the intelligence services uh, are, are are battling uh, a range of serious threats, and uh, that requires at times travel, uh, source debriefings, polygraphs, you know, assessments, uh, surveillance activities. So, you know, literally, you know, for every disaster that that may may unfold on the streets of London or or Boston, um, you're, you're dealing with with uh, dozens of other incredible and serious threats behind the curtain, so to speak. Yeah, because, I mean, it sounds to me like, so if, if something like, for example, you're investigating um, activity in Lebanon from time to time, I mean, you're having to go out to a hostile environment. It sounds to me like you're kind of constantly at risk when you have to go out and meet a confidential source and you're always looking over your shoulder. I mean, how do... How do you kind of mitigate that risk to yourself, um, and how do you, I suppose, manage the potential paranoia that could come with that? Well, it uh, it, it takes planning. Uh, at times, uh, you do have to react very quickly and and fly by the seat of your pants, uh, depending upon the nature of the threat, but uh, or the circumstances. Uh, in those days, you you certainly did not have a lot of resources to deal with issues, but. Uh, you, you take obvious precautions. Uh, you let folks know where you're going and and who you might be meeting with uh, if you can. And uh, uh, you know, of course, um, you know from a situational awareness perspective, you're you're alert. Uh, but whenever we were meeting with individuals like that, in, in the back of my mind, uh, a couple uh, Israeli intelligence officers that were that were murdered uh, in Europe, uh, meeting in essence with Palestinian double agents. So. You know, you're, you're hoping they, they were pretty much set up. Uh, um, and so you're hoping that you're not walking into that kind of situation. Um, and, you know, depending upon the circumstances, you would work with your local governments to help, uh, uh, provided you trusted them, but um, um, to, to, you know, to provide backup uh, or to make sure that you had people uh, on site to, to help. Yeah, no, it's very complicated and, uh, and uh, yeah, sort of quite, um, I don't know, yeah, quite quite stressful actually, really. I mean, the, the one thing I got from reading your book is, um, in a sense, the, the personal toll, because you're on call almost pretty much 24-7. As you were saying earlier, you're only one of three officers who were involved with um, investigating terrorism and, and um, you were literally having to go off at a moment's notice anywhere around the world. Uh, what was that sort of like? Uh, you know, looking back on it, uh, Chris, uh, it, it certainly was, um, you know, very um, stressful. Uh, it was, it was not the job for everybody. You know, I, I've, I've had a, a number of years now to reflect back on, uh, you know, my life at the time, and, and I'm not so sure I would do the same thing again. Uh, you know, in, in the moment, uh, you felt that. Um, and knew that if you did not do something about this problem, that literally nobody else would. 
So um, there, there was a great deal of stress at times. And it's not easy on yourself. It's not easy on your family. Uh, you know, I can remember missing uh, birthday parties and and family events. And, you know, it's it, but having said that, Chris, it's, it's no different than, you know, our brave um, uh, soldiers deployed around the world uh, or other public safety personnel, you know, uh, battling, um, you know, terrorism today. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, these kinds of jobs are are personal decisions. You know, is it is it right for you? Do you want to live in this kind of 24 by 7 world where you're always uh, on call? You know, I, I will say this. I think that the the endless war on terror, I'm afraid, has led to, you know, the deployment and the hiring of of literally thousands of agents today and surveillance teams and intelligence analysts. So, uh, you know, the world has changed. Uh, and, and the world has always been a dangerous place. There's just more resources devoted to the problem today than it was when I first started. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you, can you just tell us, give us a few examples of some of the kind of cases you were involved with? I mean, in particular, what I was quite interested in listening about, um, well, sort of reading about when I read the book, was the um, uh, the hostages in Lebanon, because people like Terry Waits, uh, obviously very famous in the UK, he was taken hostage in the late 80s. And before he was taken hostage, he was actually um, a negotiator who you'd actually met with from time to time. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Well, our hostage problem... Uh in the, in the mid 1980s was, um, you know, driving not only American foreign policy, but, uh, uh, many others. We had, uh, uh, a range of different hostages held by Hezbollah in Lebanon from British to French to Korean to Russian to American. And we had, uh, uh clergy members like Father Jinko. We had American University Beirut, uh, hospital administrators, uh, we had certainly uh, Terry Waite. And, uh, of course, what was driving the the U.S. interest, uh, to be quite blunt, was the Hezbollah was uh, holding and had kidnapped uh, uh, the CIA station chief in Beirut. And uh, the the CIA made it a priority, obviously, to, to find uh, the station chief and, and to try to get him out of captivity. Uh, and of course, that led to you know the Iran Contra mess um, and uh, arms, specifically tow missiles, being exchanged for hostages and so forth. So, uh, my role at the time was um, as a representative from the State Department was engaged with trying to find the hostages uh, and working with a small team of uh, FBI and CIA officials. Uh, and then we would fly out uh, to uh, debrief the hostages once they were uh, let out of captivity or escaped from captivity. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Charlie Glass um, had uh, escaped from captivity, and he was an ABC News correspondent. So uh, we would uh, spend several days talking to the hostages, trying to make sense and trying to figure out uh, where they were held, who held them. And get into very, um, very extreme detail from you know which way the doors swung to, you know what kind of noises were overheard uh, where they were held, uh, and obviously with the purpose of of trying to put together enough uh, granular data so the hostages could be rescued by um, um, 
JSOC, uh, Delta at the time. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, we never were able to get that granular of data uh, or our information was always um, two, three, or several days old. Uh, but uh, uh, it was a fascinating part of my career to be involved in that, uh, to see, you know, how the um, the intelligence community works. Uh, uh, I've made lifelong friends with um, uh, some of the hostages. For example, uh, Charlie Glass and I still communicate uh, uh, about um, – uh, his ordeal. So um, it was an interesting time to be a part of, uh, you know, counterterrorism history. Yeah. How is Charlie Glass now? Oh, he's fine. Uh, he's uh, actually living uh, in London and um, um, and still writing books and and uh, doing uh, journalist work and. Uh, goes back and forth to Lebanon and, and recently uh, has been in Syria, uh, of all places. So uh, uh, I, I remind Charlie all the time, I, I hope he doesn't uh, wind up uh, a hostage again. And 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 he and I, he kind of chuckles and says, you know, I think I've learned my lesson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, he wouldn't want to end up in the hands of somebody like ISIS, would he? Gosh. No. No, not at all. No, I mean, um, I remember when I was reading your book, I actually had to, I was reading it over Christmas and I had to pause for a bit because I was finding the description of what these hostages were going through was actually a bit much, nothing against what you were writing, it was just what they were going through. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, actually, you know, this is Christmas time, I don't really want to necessarily be reading about this right now. So I could have resumed just after Christmas. But I mean, the things they were going through were horrific. I mean, one of the things I think you just, uh, if I remember correctly, was when they were being transported from one place to another, they were literally sort of taped from head to head to toe, so they couldn't move. And I mean, it sounds horrific. It was. Uh, they were literally wrapped up like mummies at times and stuffed uh, in the undercarriage of lorries and and vans. Uh, in in other uh, in other situations, they were. They were hooded and bound and and held in in floors and underground um, cubby holes of barns and uh, and they were beat, uh, tortured and and of course uh, uh, did not receive adequate medical care uh, at at all and and um, it it was always amazing to me looking back on that Chris that you know clearly uh, and, and they were held by Hezbollah. Uh, you know, let's let's be quite clear. And uh, many were taken uh, at the direction of uh, Iran, uh, and Hezbollah actually carried out the abductions. And um, and and we, you know, we could not find them, and and that drove um, many of us uh, mad because uh, we knew that at times we were we were racing. Uh, to try to find these uh, poor hostages before uh, they got ill or or sick or something happened, and they were just treated horribly. And uh, you know, to this day, uh, the hostage takers, uh, you know, a few have been eliminated or or killed and uh, and so forth. But uh, you know, most of them have have never paid. Uh, you know, for the uh, injustices done in, in holding all of these hostages, you know, from the French to the British to the Koreans to the Russians and the Americans, I'm sad to say. Mm. And the CIA station chief who had been kidnapped, William Buckley, died in captivity in the end, didn't he? 
He did. Uh, I'm sad to say, uh, very much um, uh, caused us a, a tremendous amount of heartache at the times because uh, we were operating under the assumption that that he was still alive and uh, that we could get to him before he passed away. And uh, but uh, unfortunately, we couldn't. Um, he uh, got very sick and didn't have good medical care and. By uh, our assessment, uh, he he in all probability died of of abuse and, and pneumonia, mm. uh, and then passed away. Mm. No, it was yeah. I remember reading that section of the book, and it was it was uh, appalling, really, um, and very sad. And I, yeah, I've been reading a bit about William Buckley as well. He was a quite a um, a hero of the CIA in his early years and uh, as far as I know quite a respected kind of figure and quite a brave man extraordinarily brave man uh, you know this was a, a man who um, at the age of 18 uh, volunteers and, and goes off to Korea uh, where he's awarded the silver star for bravery uh, comes back to the United States finishes his college degree and um, joins the CIA and goes off to Vietnam where uh, he's awarded a second silver star for bravery. Uh, and then uh, after the uh, horrific car bombings in Beirut uh, and specifically the embassy attack where the entire CIA station was uh, pretty much decimated uh, in a Hezbollah car bomb, uh, Bill Buckley volunteers to go uh, to Lebanon uh, to rebuild the CIA network and country. And uh, so there was something different about Bill. Uh, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by um, heroes like this who, uh, you know, run towards the sound of, of danger. Uh, and uh, Bill was like that. And uh, he certainly uh, died a horrible death in my assessment. Yeah, yeah, he did. He deserved better, definitely. Most definitely. Um, let's look at another case of yours. You were involved in the investigation of the Pakistani president, President Zahir, who plane crashed in mysterious circumstances, and you, um, uh, as uh, part of the DSS, was sent out, which is sort of a little bit unusual. Do you want to tell us a bit about that case? Uh, that was uh, probably the most complex investigation I ever worked, and, and that was... Uh, uh, the 1988 plane crash of uh, what was called PAC-1, uh, P-A-K-1, which was the presidential aircraft, which was actually a C-130 uh, U.S. manufactured aircraft uh, that was carrying President Zia of Pakistan, uh, the United States ambassador to Pakistan, Arnold Rafel, uh, a U.S. Army brigadier general. And, and pretty much the entire Pakistani uh, cabinet. Uh, and the plane uh, had flown uh, to a little uh, airport in Buala Lapore, Pakistan, for uh, some M1A tank trials. And then as it took off uh, on a bright, sunny day, uh, the plane uh, was kind of like a roller coaster shortly after takeoff and, and just nose dived into the Punjab of Pakistan and um, you know within hours um, uh, I was dispatched uh, along with another young agent 
uh, to go over and try to make sense of, of what took place. And um, I, I have to say uh, it was a, a tad bit overwhelming uh, and um, in, in looking at that, and I would subsequently go on to look at other aircraft, plane crashes and bombings and hijackings. But um, and, and the media always gets this wrong, um, uh, just as a sidebar, um, after Ambassador Stevens was killed in, in Benghazi, um, the, the last U.S. ambassador killed in the line of duty uh, before Stevens in Benghazi was Ambassador Rafel in Pakistan, you know, aboard uh, the aircraft uh, that, that went down. And the stakes were quite high in this investigation because the Pakistani government were wanting to blame India for shooting it down, weren't they? Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I, I was told uh, subsequent to my trip there that uh, the, the stakes were enormous, uh, that uh, it may have been one of the closest times we have ever been to nuclear war. Uh, remember, you have um, President Zia, you have him going down, you have the largest uh, covert operation since Vietnam underway in Afghanistan uh, with um, the U.S. support for the Mujahideen and in, in trying to uh, take on uh, the Russians that were in Afghanistan. So you had this proxy war in play. Uh, and then you have this plane crash, which um, the Pakistanis were blaming the Indian government uh, for sabotaging the aircraft. So uh, it was um, a, a hornet's nest, you know, the likes of which I, I had never experienced until that time period. And, and, bear, and bear in mind, you know, when that plane crashed, I had probably been on the job uh, all of maybe three years uh, and certainly had seen my share of, of tragedy in that three-year time period, but but nothing like this. And um, I can still, as we're talking about it, Chris, I can I can still vividly recall that crime scene uh, and see um, see the plane in in the in the desert with uh, these dust devils swirling around, and um, you know the Pakistanis had a had kind of a lean-to set up with a, a, a buffet of food sitting there with kind of sw flies swarming about and and looking at this this whole smoldering hole in the desert and it was just um you know god awful to be blunt yeah no i bet i bet it, it certainly uh yeah, it, it, you certainly painted a great picture in your book of that, and you just have just now. It's uh, yeah, it did sound pretty awful. Um, and I remember there was a there's a moment in your book where you were interviewing, I think it was a shepherd um, who had seen the plane's sort of strange movement. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I, I can uh, recall him standing there uh, trying to, and we did not speak a lick of. Uh, of Urdu or uh, or whatever language he spoke, and we had a a Pakistani minder uh, with us, uh, uh, a guy who I had nicknamed uh, Cheech from uh, the old uh, Cheech and Chong series. He he kind of looked like him, and uh, so my my fellow agent and I called him Cheech because he he persisted to follow us wherever we went, and so we're talking to this shepherd that we had found and. And he makes this motion with his hand of, of like a roller coaster motion. And he had witnessed the plane go down. And um, it was 
I, I can remember drawing in my little notepad, you know, this this um, roller coaster motion of how the plane impacted and shortly after takeoff. So it was, uh, you know, sometimes you can't make this stuff up and, and you're not dealing with uh, perfect crime scenes in the international environment and uh, and it becomes extraordinarily difficult to, to even get basic information as to what took place. Yeah, yeah, and there was and um, there was a sense of intimidation from the is it the ISI? Um, the shepherd was sort of quite stressed by the ISI's presence. Oh, it was absolutely dreadful, uh, and and uh, the uh, they seemed to be everywhere watching us, and uh, you know, of course, the stakes were very high, and uh, you know, I can vividly recall my first meeting with them when we first got there, and uh, remember. Uh, President Zia was Army, and uh, Army ran the country. And, uh, of course, all the senior Army brass went down on the plane. So you had the Air Force uh, that was responsible uh, for the investigation. So you had the Air Force-Army rivalry uh, unfolding in front of us, and then you had the Pakistani intelligence service there uh, taking a, a, a hell of a lot of flack for not preventing this from happening. Uh, so, you know, the politics were, were extraordinarily high. And uh, the, the in our first meeting, uh, they were convinced that a missile had hit the plane. And, um, you know, I knew that, you know, the, the evidence would, would show that, but we had to look at the evidence, and I wasn't going to jump to conclusions uh, early on. And so, uh, but they had this preconceived notion that, uh, you know, a rocket had been fired and, and brought the aircraft down, which uh, we we later learned through interviews such as the Shepard that uh, none of this had taken place. So it was very uh, politically sensitive, as you can imagine, because, uh, you know, we had to be not only fact finders, but we had to, to be diplomats as, as diplomatic as we possibly could. Uh, so um, it was a tough case. No, I bet, I bet. I won't. I won't give away the ending of the case because I think people should read your book and they can find it for themselves. <laughs> but, um, but uh, no, that was a. It's a very interesting case. That one. One, I suppose, um, slightly wide and possibly silly question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, how do you approach such a, a crime scene like that as an investigator? What kind of things are you looking for? What kind of mindset do you have? You go back to the basics, Chris. Uh, in in you kind of dumb down the facts to your who, what, when, where, how, and why, meaning um, what took place, um, uh, what did people see, uh, and you try to do basic fact-gathering uh, and and cut out all the clutter and speculation and, and news uh, stories and, and kind of uh, draw your own conclusions based on uh, the evidence that you uncover – uh, the witness statements that you take, and, and observations just based on on your knowledge. Uh, you know, for example, uh, in the Pac-1 crash, uh, we knew that the plane had not really been secured on the ground uh, at this small little airport, uh, and we also learned early on that uh, luggage or or uh, boxes or crates or um, any kind of packages going aboard the aircraft uh, were not screened for explosive devices, for example. So 
you know, you, you try to do some basic fact gathering such as that, uh, and then uh, go in the direction of of the evidence, and then uh, hopefully the intelligence community behind the scenes can help you with, um, you know, related intelligence can help you make sense of the puzzle. So um, it, it it's old fashioned detective work, you know. That at the end of the day, it, it's no different than you know a, a terrorist attack uh, or in, in many ways uh, an espionage case at times is is just basic uh, detective work. Yeah. Now, just before we move on to discussing terrorism, I've got one kind of geeky or nerdy question for you. In your book, um, you mention these devices called, is it Stu phones or STU phones that crop up? And um, can you just tell us a bit about those phones? <laughs> they sound amazing. Sure. Uh, we used to uh, joke amongst ourselves uh, in in the office that, you know, they were the bat phones from Gotham City. <laughs> uh, they were they were secure voice phones, uh, uh, nicknamed Stu's. I'm sure uh, it, it stood for uh, some acronym that I've long since forgotten. But, you know, it's a special kind of phone that uh, um, you can uh, talk, uh, depending upon the phone, you can talk up to high-level classified kind of data uh, with um, without the hope of uh, the Russians or the Chinese listening in. These were, um, you know, uh, phones that look a lot like an old uh, push-to-talk or rotary kind of phone at times. And today, uh, I'm sure the technology, you know, far exceeds what we had in that time period. But we did not have a lot of those phones uh, early on. Um, and I can remember uh, the first time using one, and, you know, thinking, uh, oh, my goodness, what is this thing? Uh, and um, then realizing that, you know, this is the, the nature of the job at this time period. And, uh, you know, it kind of looked like an old uh, dial-up rotary phone that you would see, you know, from the 1950s. And did you have to carry around a special case? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, it, well, you, you, it's funny you mentioned that. We used to have uh, these black little uh, – uh, GSA government issued uh, suitcases where uh, we could carry a, a portable phone with you. And I remember uh, the first time I had that when I was a duty agent and we had one. Um, of, of course, you're you're worried sick that you're going to lose it or or uh, or some somebody's going to break into your car and steal it. But uh, uh, it it was. Uh, um, at, at times, at times, Chris, you know, you, it's it's the seriousness of the job, but in other times, you you, you feel like you're in a bad episode of Get Smart. <laughs> that was a great show, Get Smart. They used to talk through their shoes, didn't they, or something? <laughs> yes. Uh, occasionally, I still get asked that question. You know, if I if I do have a shoe phone, and and I say, uh, well, I uh, if I did have a shoe phone, I would have had to turn it in when I left the government. <laughs> Excellent. Now, um, we're just going to uh, let's just talk a bit about um, you investigated terrorism during the 80s and 90s, and this is the days before Al Qaeda and ISIS. And some of the groups you investigated have since disbanded, whilst others remain relevant today. Um, it'd be great just to ask you a few questions about those organizations that you did investigate. Um, now, we'll start with um, Black September. Am I right in remembering that your mentor, when you were at the DSS, said to you to understand terrorism, you had to study Black September? Can you just tell us a bit about them? Yes, indeed. My old boss, uh, Steve Gleason, who I'm still in touch with, uh, he's he's long retired now, but uh, 
uh, I can remember him handling handing me these old uh, uh, dog-eared case files with uh, the name Black September scrawled across them, and he said to you know to understand terrorism and to understand how we got here, you really do need to take a look at this group called the Black September Organization, and. There was a period of time, uh, you know, in the early 1970s, from about 1971 uh, on up into, say, 1973, uh, the group was carrying out uh, spectacular terrorist attacks, uh, most notably uh, the 1972 attack on uh, the Israeli athletes in Munich, which, um, you know, Steven Spielberg went on and and did a a pretty good film on, on that. And um, so the group was hijacking planes and carrying out assassinations and murdering Israeli double agents and and um, uh, carried out uh, the murder of uh, our diplomats, American diplomats in Khartoum uh, at the Saudi embassy in 73 uh, and just doing these spectacular attacks. And 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 their tactics still resonate today, uh, Chris. I mean, you look at how they they pick and study their targets, and you know their methodology. And um, in in essence, the Black September organization was a uh, a covert uh, organization associated with Arafat's PLO, and and Arafat created this organization uh, to target America, to target uh, Israelis, and. Uh, and they were pretty damn good at it, and uh, they were always one step ahead of of uh, law enforcement back in those days. And uh, and then that led into uh, your famous Israeli um, Mossad uh, retribution attacks and and what was called the Wrath of God Squad attacks. And you know the Israelis started uh, targeting uh, Black September members in Rome, Paris, Nicosia, Beirut, Athens. Uh, and so uh, it, it was uh, a fascinating time in the history of terror, and, and I learned a lot uh, in, in studying the group. In fact, uh, in fact, I'm staring at my whiteboard today in my office. Uh, my wall is actually a whiteboard, and I've got uh, um, all kinds of uh, uh, old Black September information scrawled on my wall uh, for the purposes of my books and research. Brilliant. <laughs> I suppose, as you say, the tactics being relevant today, I suppose that knowledge has been sort of passed on through terrorist circles or people have studied Black September for their own purposes. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, a group, uh, uh, the radical Palestinian group, you know, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine uh, carried out um, uh, long before uh, the events of 9-11, you know, they carried out a spectacular hijacking, you know, taking four aircraft on the same day. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's, yeah, you know, when I, when I talk to students or I talk to other law enforcement, uh, uh, I do briefings or, or speeches, you know, there's a, a lot can be learned by studying the old, uh, modus operandi of, of groups such as, uh, the Black September Organization or Abu Nidal or the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Let's take a look at um, Hezbollah. They're another group, and they're still active today. Um, can you just tell us a bit about them um, and sort of the acts they've been responsible for and their status today? Yeah, well, Hezbollah, uh, probably before uh, bin Laden's uh, uh, 9-11, uh, had more uh, 
U.S. and Western and Israeli blood on their hands than than any other terrorist organization. You know, this is a group that was responsible for not only the hostage takings of uh, all the Westerners in Beirut, uh, but um, uh, spectacular uh, aircraft hijackings like uh, TWA Flight 847 uh, and and the death of uh, U.S. Navy. Uh, diver by the name of Robert Stedham. Uh, they were also involved in the bombings of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut in 83 and 84, uh, the U.S. Embassy bombing in Kuwait in 84, uh, the Marine barracks bombing in, in Beirut, uh, and then the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so, uh, and, and on up until, you know, the 1990s where uh, they carried out uh, the massive in BA Argentina, uh, directed towards uh, uh, the uh, uh, Israeli embassy and and a uh, Jewish uh, American daycare center there. Uh, you know, this was a group that um, was extraordinarily lethal. And um, and they're still very much active today. Very much so. Uh, you know, the group uh, you know has uh, become a little bit like the PLO uh, in that it has morphed into uh, someone would call it a political organization. Uh, you know, led by uh, uh, Hassan uh, Nasrallah, uh, but um, you know, I would certainly, you know, it's hard for me to believe that uh, an organization with so much blood on its hand uh, is a legitimate political organization. Uh, but they certainly use terror uh, to their um, uh, survivability, uh, and uh, they certainly are a formidable force, as the Israelis learned uh, in the uh, Israeli-Hezbollah war. Yeah. And in the UK recently, there's been some parliamentary debate about um, the banning of, uh, of Al-Quds Day, which is this annual protest against the um, existence of Israel. During Al-Quds Day, it's a common sight to see Hezbollah flags on the streets of London. And if you look closely, there's usually a small sticker on that flag that claims that the flag bearers supporting the political wing of Hezbollah are not the banned military wing. Uh, and supporters of Al-Quds Day like to claim that there is a distinction between the military wing and political wing of Hezbollah. Is there really a distinction between those two wings? I would say no. I would say there's a very fine line between the two uh, that um, march and sync that operate together uh, to, car- to carry out, um, you know, the, uh, the, the overarching uh, political uh, agenda of Hezbollah. Uh, they haven't lost sight of uh, their enemies, uh, namely Israel and, and the United States and the UK. Uh, so this is a group that uh, in many ways is, can also be called an, an international criminal enterprise just due to uh, drug smuggling and, and money laundering and stolen cars and and everything from stolen cigarettes. So, you know, I, I think this is an organization that we've never uh, had a good handle on. Uh, that um, is a force to be reckoned with, you know, over the next uh, 20 years. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. 
So since leaving the DSS, you've, um, there was an unsolved cold case that stayed with you, and this case was personal to you because the victim was one of your neighbours, uh, Colonel Yosef Alon of the Israeli Air Force. And in 1973, he and his wife were returning from a party when a gunman stepped out from behind a tree and shot Yosef dead, and his wife narrowly escaped by running into the house. Can you just tell us a bit about Yosef Alon and why he would have been a target? Colonel Alon was one of the original founders of uh, the Israeli Air Force, um, he was uh, a protector of the of the nation of, of Israel, and he was uh, the military attache assigned to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. Now, um, Colonel Alon also wore two hats. Um, uh, you and I would call him a spook. You know, part of his duties was uh, intelligence collection, uh, like many military attaches are. Uh, and, um, you know, his job was... Um, uh, to not only work with the American uh, Pentagon, uh, but also, you know, to keep an eye on um, Palestinian issues and, and other issues that were of of uh, extreme interest to the state of Israel. You know, in the in the 1970s, bear in mind, uh, you had the Black September organization uh, killing uh, Israeli uh, officers around the globe uh, and carrying out these spectacular attacks. So. You know, it would it would have been very natural for Colonel Alon to first and foremost uh, also be focused on you know on that potential threat. Can you just tell us a bit about when you picked up the case and how you went about investigating it? Uh, the case uh, we had a um, very flimsy file in in our office when I was a young agent back in the eighties, and it was uh, you know kind of stuffed full of uh, various news reports and local police report from. Um, where the crime had taken place, which happened to have been my old police department, uh, and and my my rescue squad actually transported uh, uh, Joe uh, Colonel Alon to the hospital that night. He was gunned down. Um, it was a case that always bothered me, uh, Chris, because when I was a cop, uh, I, I would always drive by the house after I got off work late at night uh, and try to think about it. You know, this was a a quiet little neighborhood that these kinds of things never should happen like that. And it always puzzled me as to who did it. And then I would learn that really nobody had any idea. So um, I started dabbling with the case as, as time permitted when I was an agent. Uh, and then we had so many other terrorist attacks, you know, the the Zia plane crash and and hijackings and bombings that one thing led to another, and we never spent a lot of time on the case. And, you know, I've told Colonel Alon's daughters this, uh, who are just wonderful uh, women today, that uh, – and, and and they watched their father die on, on the front lawn of their house. And, you know, I said, look, I'm not very proud of my efforts, uh, not only as a person, but as an agent when I was in an official capacity to do something about this case. Uh, so – uh, I picked the case up, um, you know, 37 years later, uh, and I think uh, did the best job I could uh, making sense of um, what happened and put that all together in my book, uh, Chasing Shadows. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting sidebar related to that. Um, uh, the FBI uh, in Paris uh, reached out to me and um, I signed uh, some books for them that they wanted to give to their French police counterparts, and 
and uh, they also uh, gave a copy to uh, Carlos the Jackal, uh, you know, <laughs> and and the Jackal uh, actually sent me back um, a copy of my own book uh, signed by the Jackal uh, that that says, uh, "With best revolutionary regards, uh, Carlos." Uh, so it's it's kind of an interesting um, keepsake I have here in the office, you know, uh, one of one of my own books signed by uh, Carlos the Jackal. Uh, folks, folks can't believe it when I show it to him. <laughs> I suppose he was. Am I right? Remember, he was one of the potential suspects in this case at one time. He was, and and they all uh, kind of um, swam in the in the same cesspool of terror back in the day. So uh, I encouraged the FBI to talk to Carlos to see what he might know because you see Chris in, in, in 1973 you have uh, this confluence of, of terror groups all merging and co-mingling uh, and being trained by the likes of the East German Stasi and the Russian KGB uh, and the Cuban DGI so you have Black September and the Italian Red Brigades and the Red Army Faction and the Irish Republican Army you know, all co-mingling and, and getting uh, support and training and money from uh, the, the Soviet KGB. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it was interesting, obviously, at the end of the Cold War, how many of those groups sort of, uh, sort of fell apart. Um, and I'm assuming it's because most of their money disappeared. Absolutely. They lost uh, their state sponsor, you know, much like uh, Gaddafi also supported them at times, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, and then you have, uh, of course, uh, you know, the Russians uh, were were heavily involved with um, supporting these organizations as part of their grand strategy to uh, destabilize the West and uh, destabilize Europe and the United States. Well, Fred, thank you so much for your time today. Um, where, uh, where can listeners sort of find out about more about you and your work? Well, uh, they can certainly visit our website, uh, which is uh, www.strat4.com, and you will find links to my podcasts and writings, and uh, uh, of course, uh, all of my books are available on you know Amazon or any of your um, book market websites. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>